quite frankly, mathematically, it is the cheapest borrowing ever. You actually cannot borrow more tax effectively than with a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 183 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. How does an LRBA actually work, a limited recourse borrowing arrangement? In episode 177, we touched on LRBAs and you sent in a huge amount of questions. So in today's episode, Peter Bobbin of Argel Lawyers in Sydney will try and give you an answer to 16 of your questions. So today the topic we're looking at is limited recourse borrowing arrangements and the approach we're going to take today is we'll, we've got a whole list of some 16 or so questions and these are some of those questions that most people really just keep asking and don't really know the answers to. So why don't we go through and just ask some of these questions and come up with some of those answers. Question one. So the first question is, do most trust deeds, that superannuation or self-managed superannuation fund trust deeds, allow limited recourse borrowing arrangements? Well, nowadays I'd have to say the answer is yes. Frankly, it'd be a pretty poor trust deed or maybe an old one that wouldn't allow for it. And the important point here is to recognise that at general trust law, trustees don't have an ability to borrow. It's not that they're prohibited, it's not that they're restricted, it's just they don't have the ability to borrow. The courts didn't vest trustees with a power to borrow. That's why lenders, whenever they're looking to lend to a self-managed superannuation fund, they're always looking for the specific power to borrow. It's not a matter of it's got to be there because the superannuation law requires it. It's really a practical matter of is the trustee empowered to borrow under trust law, generally no, so you need to be specifically empowered. And that's why you'll find your modern self-managed superannuation fund trust deed has a very specific power that enables the uh, self-managed super fund trustee to borrow. Let's look at another question. Question number two. Can anybody be the lender in an LRBA arrangement? Well, nowadays the answer here is yes. Anybody can be the lender. More commonly than not, there have been Australian deposit institutions, which is the phrase ADI, and they reference uh, banks and the such that are recognised under uh, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority regime. But of late, in 2019, several of the banks have actually decided to get out of this market. Perhaps they just found it just not cost-effective for them. As long as there's a lender, then you'll be able to undertake that LRBA arrangement. But on occasions, 
it may be that the uh, the individual, the client, the member, maybe they're flush with the funds. Can they be the lender instead of borrowing from a third party? The answer is yes. But where the lender is a related party, just take extra care, cross those T's, dot those I's on all of the documentation. And there's a particular guideline that the Australian Taxation Office has put out. Now, I don't recall the number of the guideline just as we speak here today, but I'm sure if you just Google LRBA SMSF borrowing guideline and the letters ATO, you likely will find that it will be uh, among the first hits. So where the person is the lender or some other associated entity such as the family trust, or maybe there's a cashed-up corporate beneficiary of the family trust that's got the cash, um, do ensure that the private loan arrangement that's put in place is actually consistent with the tax office guidelines. Question three. As many will be aware that whenever there's a limited recourse borrowing arrangement in place, there's also got to be this bear trust. So what is a bear trust? And well, some seem to call it a custodian company. Is there a difference between a custodian company and a bear trustee? For all practical and probably also legal purposes, Whether it's called a custodian company, nominee company, or a bear trustee company, you'll find that they're likely to be all the same and that these phrases are used interchangeably to describe the situation where whatever's been bought with the loan has not been put into the super fund name, it's been put into another company who acts as nominee for the super fund or custodian for the super fund or bear trustee for the super fund. So if we say that they're all the same, how does a bear trust differ from what you might otherwise call a normal trust? Well, really it differs in the name as to how it operates and and the name describes it. You see, a bear trust, as the phrase bear would imply, is where the trust is very bare in nature. That is, the trustee merely is the title holder. That's how bare the trust is. The trustee is merely the title holder. The the particular real estate, my example I'll be working through here on, is in the name of the company, and that's it. There are no other specified rules. Now, I emphasise specified rules because where there's a bare trustee, there are many rules that will apply, and these are found in either the State or Territory Trustee Act and, more relevantly also, the 700-plus years of trust in court-made law. So we best characterised a bare trust by one in respect of which there is no written rules. That's how we best characterise it. And it is merely a situation where the legal title to the particular underlying property will be in the name of that entity who then holds it as nominee for or custodian, if you like. Question number four. Let's look at another question. Does the uh, custodian company need a special constitution? Because, well, often we have a company. Technically, we don't have to have a company to act as bare trustee, 
but we often do just because it keeps clarity and keeps separation of individual interests. So does the custodian or nominee company or bear company need a special constitution or is a normal constitution enough? Normal is enough. Even one, if we have a company that's entirely relying on the replaceable rules, that's enough. You don't need to have a special purpose company. Question five. Some people ask, why is the bear trustee company needed in the first place? Well, it actually does nothing. Certainly that's my view. In in my opinion, this area of uh, 67A, it's a specific section of the superannuation law. And well, my view is that the original parliamentary draftsman just got it wrong. They put in place the need to have a company out of some misconceived idea as to the company or the bear trustee, I should say, serving a particular role without me spending too much time on it. To answer the question, why is a bear company or bear trustee needed? The answer is because the legislation says so. Does it achieve anything? In my opinion, no. Can you avoid it? Definitely not, because the legislation requires if there's going to be a borrowing to acquire an asset, then a bear trustee 67A is required. Question number six. Who should be the shareholder and director of the custodian, nominee or bear company? Well, it, look, it can be anybody. The most common approach I find, however, is that the directors of the self-managed super fund will also be the directors of the custodian company, just keeping consistency between them. There might be reasons as to why, for management or administration reasons, where the bear company, remember I'm using it interchangeably, custodian or nominee company, may only have one of the member directors of the self-managed super fund, and that's quite fine too. For superannuation law purposes, members must be trustees or members must be directors of the trustee company and the directors must be members. But there's no requirement that all parties also act as directors or shareholders, again, of the bear company. Question seven. So another question, the uh, custodian company, who signs the purchase contract? See, the super fund's buying, but the contract or the, the property needs to go into the name of the custodian. So who signs the purchase contract? So here, the major view is that you have the bear nominee or the bear company being the identity of the purchaser. They are the ones that are signing the contract. The particular process adopted here is really a factor of stamp duty. And again, stamp duty, you need to be aware of, varies right across Australia. So for all jurisdictions other than Queensland, you would just identify the custodian company and its name and its name only on the purchase contract. You would not identify the capacity in which it's acting. You would not identify that it intends to be this bare nominee. In Queensland, it's not uncommon that you would actually identify the character in which the bear company is acting, but that's because in Queensland uh, there is a mechanism by which you can identify someone as the holder of real estate 
and the capacity in which they're acting. Certainly in New South Wales, one can't do that. Question number eight. So let's look at another question. The custodian company can carry any name or does the name need to have specific elements? No, it can be any name whatsoever. There's no need to say that this is Superfund nominee proprietary limited or this is XYZ trustee bear nominee proprietary limited. No, you can simply have any name. Does the bear trustee company enjoy the benefits of a special company recognition for lower ASIC fees? The answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, you've got to pay your uh, full annual ASIC fees. Question nine. Let's look at another question. What is the timeline? When should the Bear Custodian Company be recognised as existing? Well, it's a simple fact that if you don't exist, you can't be a purchaser. That's the base. There's some concepts of pre-incorporation agreements and how a company may, if it didn't exist at the time of entering into a contract, ratify a, a contract that existed prior to the end of the existing. But let's not go there because that just raises yet another complication which people don't want when you're dealing with superannuation. So if the intention is to go out and buy some land, for example, under an LRBA arrangement and there's an acknowledgement that 67A of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Act then requires some form of bare nominee or custodian company in place, have the company up and running, have it ready to go, have it before the purchase is undertaken, before the purchase contract is signed and make sure that it, to the extent necessary, is incorporated into the limited recourse borrowing arrangements. You establish a custodian company yeah. before the purchase. Yes. But when do you set up the loan agreement? When do you set up the actual LRBA? Before or after the purchase? When do you set up the LRBA? Well, really, that's going to be a, a factor of who you're dealing with. The limited recourse borrowing arrangement, I would expect, if it's a third-party lender, they'll want to have all the terms in place before the purchase is done. Okay, perhaps the uh, the contract has been signed and the 10%, there was enough money to cover the 10% and the deposit was paid. And then the super fund rushes out to try and get an LRBA in place. Oh, well, that's fine too. But I think you'll find any third-party lender will want to have those terms of that agreement in place before the money is advanced. What about if it's a self-managed LRBA? What about if the individual or their company or their trust is providing the funding? It's self-funded. Again, I think, because remember, super funds must act on an arm's length basis and an arm's length basis involving a third party lender, the documentation would be in place before the monies were drawn upon. So it's much safer to simply adopt that same arrangement, put the limited recourse borrowing arrangement terms in place before the settlement. Potentially it could be done after the initial purchase, but definitely have it in place before the settlement. Question number 10. So another question that often is asked where it's a self-funded limited recourse borrowing arrangement 
Does Division 7A of the 36 Tax Act apply? And the answer is yes. You just need to make sure that the limited recourse borrowing arrangement terms not only comply with the guidelines that the Australian Taxation Office has issued when that self-funded arrangement, but also that the minimum interest due to be paid as well as the repayments are actually consistent with Division 7A. You don't want to fall out of the frying pan and into the fire by complying with superannuation law, but then creating a situation where there's some form of deemed dividend because of not complying with Division 7A. Question 11. Who signs the loan agreement? Just who is who? So the most common approach is, one, the bear nominee custodian company will have its name on title of the real estate. Why? 67A requires it. Is there a good reason? In my opinion, no. Just 67A requires it. Question number 12. What about the loan document? Who's actually the borrower? Well, the way these things are, that uh, the most common approach is that the borrower is actually the super fund itself. So more commonly than not, the lender will deal with the super fund trustee and it will have its name on the loan agreement. It will then refer to the fact that the loan is in respect of the particular property, title of which will go into the bear or nominee or uh, or custodian entity company name. More usual than not, there'll also be a document whereby the SMSF trustee is acknowledging that the custodian is the holder of the property and vice versa, that the custodian is acknowledging to the lender that the custodian is holding the property for the SMSF. And that just brings the whole thing together. So what are those uh, primary documents needed for an LRBA? Well, one is going to be the purchase contract and the other is going to be the loan agreement. Purchase contract, commonly in the name of, if not always, but commonly in the name of the nominee, custodian or bear trustee company, and the loan agreement, most commonly in the name of the super fund. And one or both or maybe a third document will reflect the fact that those particular parties are working cooperatively, one being the real estate holder and the other being the borrower, and that they're working cooperatively under the one transaction. Question 13. Another question is, can an LRBA be with or without a mortgage? Well, again, it's up to the lender. Most third-party lenders, if not all, would require some form of mortgage document. That's just a fact of securing their advance, securing the money that they've loaned. Is there a requirement under a self-lending arrangement to have a mortgage? Well, technically, no. But do remember that trustees, super fund trustees, are obligated to engage on an arm's-length basis. And so if you want the arrangements to satisfy your standard superannuation rules, you want them to look as much as arm's length as possible. And if a bank is inclined to put an arm's length loan in place, the bank is 
of the character that's going to put a formal mortgage over the real estate, then why wouldn't you duplicate that just to demonstrate that the self-funding arrangement is on all fours with and is being done on an arm's length basis? Do most LIBAs you see with related parties include a mortgage? Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, sorry, the, the ones that I see, the answer is yes. Technically, there's no need for it. There's nothing in the super law that requires it. But to reinforce that the parties are dealing with each other on an arm's length basis, I urge the idea of putting a mortgage in place. Question number 14. What happens if the limited recourse borrowing arrangement loan contract says and stipulates the interest payment that's due and the interest payment at a particular market rate level, but the SMSF, the self-managed super fund, doesn't book or pay the interest. What happens there? Well, you've simply got a breach, don't you? If the loan agreement is with a third party, then non-payment of the breach or the non-payment of the uh, loan amount may, first of all, crystallise a higher rate of interest and, second of all, may crystallise becoming a mortgagee in possession and taking over the property for the purposes of sale. What about if it's in the self-funding arrangement? Well, you've got exactly the same thing occurring, only it's a bit more diabolical because, it, well, the super fund is not paying interest to a related party, then you just may find the super fund is in connection with the non-payment of interest engaging in a non-arms length relationship. And, well, if it becomes non-arms length in any way, that can either impact complying status because Section 109 is breached or maybe give rise to a claim of special income. So where the super fund finds itself in a position where, for whatever reason, it can't pay interest, it really should deal with it in one way or another. And that may mean selling the property so as to be able to put the super fund back into a position where it's dealing with its associated entity on an arm's length basis. Perhaps contributions need to be made to sufficiently fund the super fund with the ability to pay those uh, interest payments. So if the SMSF doesn't pay the interest, the whole arrangement becomes non-arm's length and hence any rent that it's is possible. earned... It's possible. It's yeah. possible. That's right. Yeah. And hence any rent that is earned through this property would then be non-arm's length as well and would be taxed at the top marginal rate. That's correct. Rent. Yes. So the risk that's faced where the SMSF doesn't pay proper interest is that the tax office may then argue that the arrangement, the whole arrangement, is a non-arm's length arrangement and therefore would then seek to uh, tax that rental income that's not bearing an interest cost at the top marginal rate of tax by deeming it to be uh, special income and non-arm's length income, commonly called NALI, N-A-L-I. The way the income is then subject to tax at the top rate, well, then that frustrates the whole purpose of using superannuation in the first place, isn't it? Question 15. Let's look at another question. Can the limited recourse borrowing arrangement set a fixed interest rate for a long period of time, say 30 years? for, say, 4%. If it's a third-party lender, clearly the answer is yes. If it's not a third-party lender, then it just gets back to, is the character of the loan relationship explicable on an arm's-length basis? Is 
it available for the super fund to borrow at 4% for 30 years in the open market. And it's just happened to have chosen the ability to borrow from a related party. That's your benchmark there. Is it still a non-arm's length or a an arm's length arrangement, I should say, though it's got a long-term borrowing at a particular fixed rate of interest? I mean, the fact of the matter is there are lenders out there that will lend on over the very, very long term, say 30 years, and they might want to pick a fixed rate, say 4%. As long as when one is self-funding, the guidelines that one looks to is um, market referable, then adopting it should be fine. Question 16. Now, another question. Why are LRBA documents so much more expensive than the actual SMSF trust deeds itself? Well, my own view here is that it's not so much that the LRBA documents are more expensive. It's more that the SMSF trust deed has so commoditized that it's actually become cheap. That is really the proper way to look at it. And why are LRBA documents more expensive? Well, the first reason is the commoditization of the SMSF trustee. The second reason is that there's often a lot more hands-on material work to be done with an LRBA document. You've actually got to populate the document. You've got to identify who the borrower is, the trustee, the super fund. You've also got to identify what the security is and what that property that's securing the loan may be and into whose name will that be held and put in place the nominee or custodian or bear trustee documentation. And and then it's a matter of then going through the process and registering that and registering the movement of title and possibly also the mortgage and at, uh, at a minimum, as I've said a little bit earlier on this presentation, some form of caveat. Why are LRBA documents more expensive than the SMSF trustee itself? Basically because there's more hands-on direct activity in making sure that the thing, the LRBA, is consistent and compliant with the superannuation law. As people sit down and look at the mm, apparent complexities with limited recourse borrowing arrangements, the question that often is asked is, why bother? Well, you know, the real reason why bother is, quite frankly, mathematically, it is the cheapest borrowing ever. You actually cannot borrow more tax effectively than with a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. Just Think of these numbers, if you will, if using a mere 200,000 as an example, if I'm on the top rate of tax and I'm uh, borrowing to acquire an income producing asset and I'm borrowing 200,000, then the question just may be, how much do I need to earn to be able to pay off that $200,000 borrowing? Well, the way to work that out is you divide the 200,000 by the obverse of your tax rate. So if we said my personal tax rate is 47%, the obverse of that is 53%. So if I divide 200 by 53%, I end up with a figure of 377,358 dollars. That is to say, I need to earn 377,358 dollars pay tax of 177358 to leave me with 200 
to then pay the loan off. Because of course, in terms of retirement objective, that's the intent, pay the loan off and have an income producing asset in retirement. Now let's compare that to doing the same borrowing via super. We take the 200 and now we divide by the obverse of the tax rate. Now the tax rate's 15%, so we divide it by 0.85. And the number is 235,294. What is that saying? Well, instead of needing to earn, because I'm a top-rate taxpayer, 377000 ish I need now, because I've borrowed via super, to earn $235,294. Over superannuation time, through the limited recourse borrowing arrangement, I'll then pay underlying superannuation tax of 35294 leaving me with 200 to pay that loan off. So it's actually mathematically perfectly sensible and strategically so much smarter to borrow through a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. Again, I earn a dollar, I'm a top-rate taxpayer and I'm borrowing personally. I'll pay 47 cents in tax, leaves me with 53 cents to pay the loan off. Or I earn a dollar and I contribute that to super and I get a full tax deduction. So I've earned a dollar got a tax deduction of a dollar, it's tax neutral to me as an individual. That dollar has now gone into superannuation. 15 cents in tax is payable on that superannuation contribution, leaving that super fund with 85 cents to pay off the same loan. If you do the maths, you'll see for yourself that borrowing via super cannot be beat. It's the most tax effective borrowing. That's why with all the bothersome rules about superannuation borrowing, using a corporate trustee of the super fund and then another company as a bare nominee or custodian, etc., to hold the property. And if you're self-funding, com- coming and complying with the guidelines, so many bothersome rules, but why? Because you cannot be how tax effective it is. That's why people do it. Welcome back. So LRBAs are tricky and we will look at non-bank LRBAs again in episode 188. In the next episode, episode 184, Tim Hoopman of Spin Business Solutions in Sydney will talk about mental health. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.